Welcome back to Cargumentative. I'm your host from the Sunday Times, Thomas Faulkner. And as usual, I'm joined in the virtual studio by Dennis Dropper and Brenwin Naidu. Dennis, how are you doing? Hey, thanks, Tom. Uh, it's uh, good to meet you again virtually. It is, Dennis. Always good to meet you virtually. And uh, Brenwin, how are you doing? Yes, well, thank you. Thomas and Dennis, good to be in the virtual studio. Now, guys, uh, this is uh, that part of the show where we talk about news, um, exciting things that have been happening in the car world. And uh, let's kick it off with Dennis. I think the most exciting thing that's happening is that we, we're having some real-life car launches in South Africa again. We've been doing everything virtually, and uh, which is not quite the same as be, being behind the wheel yourself. So last week, I went to Swatkorp's racetrack to go and drive the BMW X5M and the X6M. Now, both these vehicles have been on sale officially in South Africa for, for a little while now, but this is the first time we've uh, had a crack at driving them. And we got to drive them on the road as well as around the racetrack. Now, as the M badge implies... These are seriously fast uh, German vehicles. I still question the, the sanity of putting such powerful engines in SUVs, which are ostensibly designed to go off-road at a slow and plodding pace. But nevertheless, sports SUVs have become very popular. And uh, with the kind of power output that this BMW competition makes, uh, I, think, I think they're going to be quite popular. So this is 460 kilowatts and 750 newton meters of and while we're talking numbers, let's talk about the ones that really matter. So this is a 2.4-ton SUV that sprints from 0 to 100 in just 3.8 seconds. And that's a rather impressive-looking equation. So we're only getting the competition versions of these vehicles, not the sort of X5M. And so the X5M competition will be priced locally at 2.6 million rand, and the Coupe x 6 M competition version will be priced at 2.7 million rand. So, Thomas, I think you're going to get yourself one of each. Absolutely, Dennis. Uh, one in silver and one in black, you know. Um, it's kind of just within my budget. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely on, uh, on the waiting list. Um, Brenwin, have you been driving anything um, as exotic as that? I, uh, I, I have. Well, I have, but, but I wanted to talk about about something else rather. I mean, you know, we all cherish the small luxuries in life, like a warm beverage and miniature pies at midday, bubble baths, candles, you know the deal, uh, Thomas. But today I wanted to talk about uh, another indulgence, and that's the realm of the large luxury sedan. And it's a segment that's perhaps not as popular as it once was. And we all know the reasons for that. Cars like uh, the model that Dennis has just mentioned, X5s and, and all the rest. Anyway, the Lexus LS has always been uh, well regarded in the class. Uh, it was the nameplate that really spearheaded its formation back in the year 1989. And the brand says it sold 87 million copies uh, of the thing since. And now there's a new one to look forward to. Uh, well, rather a revised version of the current car, promising even more luxury. And aside from the customary exterior tweaks, Lexus says the car is even quieter, more composed, under-spirited driving, and that it even has a touchscreen for greater operability. So welcome to the year 2020, Lexus. But it's a pity that no one will buy it. I mean, when when last have you seen one of those one of those Alice's milling around? 
So the smart thing to do would be to pick one up secondhand because like most cars in the segments, the LS is beset by dramatic depreciation. And that'll leave you with a bit more change for those other small luxuries like tea bags and uh, bubble bath foam. Yeah, it's um, it's a shame that nobody buys those. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of Lexus. Um, it's no secret. And that... Uh, that Alice is, you know, as big luxury sedans go, it's, it's probably one of the best. I'd take it over a, a 7 Series or an S-Class, that's for sure. Um, and the way that they're built is just, uh, I mean, so, so good. You know, the, the attention to detail and the quality of the materials, um, for me, are just yeah, top of the class. Um, so while you guys have been driving real cars, I've been uh, driving virtual cars. I've uh, I entered that Ford Performance Lockdown Laps competition, which is basically a uh, an online racing championship uh, that Ford is hosting, and it's uh, it's being held on the popular Gran Turismo Sport platform. And um, it's been a lot of fun, actually. Uh, we had a qualifying round where we had to go out and set a uh, qualifying time around the Red Bull ring. Um, about, I think it was about 200 plus people entered. Um, and they only chose 72 to go through to uh, the second round, which was uh, race one of the championship. And um, I spent many, many hours in the first week uh, setting a qualifying lap. Um didn't start off too too well and then i got some online coaching which is a thing like you can actually you can get in touch of well yeah you can get in touch with with uh, online racing driver coaches which which just you know they um it's quite handy to just show you the correct lines around the track uh the braking points um, you know, because the, the, the virtual world versus the real world is a little bit different. So even though I've I've had experience on tracks, you know, around South Africa, um, driving in the virtual realm is is somewhat different. So it was it was good to have somebody come in and uh, give me a couple of pointers. So I, I managed to qualify. I think I came 38th or 39th out of the 72. And uh, yeah, we had our first race at Laguna Seca. Uh, on a Saturday, um, and we all had to drive Ford Focus STs. I'm not a big fan of front-wheel drive cars around circuits, so I kind of struggled to get into a, a rhythm. But, uh, yeah, so we had our, our first race of the championship, managed to qualify uh, seventh and uh, finished sixth out of, out of nine people. So not, not amazing, but... Uh, I didn't disgrace myself, and it's just been a, a lot of fun, this whole online sim racing uh, malarkey. Uh, I was never really into it, and then um, lockdown happened, and you know I could no longer go racing on real circuits. And um, yeah, Gran Turismo Sport, a lot of fun. Um, if you're thinking about it, get into it. Get, a, get a, a rig, go get yourself a Logitech G29, get a secondhand PlayStation, get Gran Turismo Sport and get cracking because it's, uh, you know, it's the next best thing, I think. And uh, a lot, lot more affordable. You'll really enjoy it. Cool, guys. Well, that's it for news. And um, yeah, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with you shortly. Join me, Nicole Engelbrecht, your host on True Crime South Africa, 
a weekly podcast that covers both solved and unsolved South African true crime cases. Welcome back to Cargumentative. In this part of the show, we're joined by a special guest, Mark Domisov, the chairman of the National Automobile Dealers Association. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much, guys. Now, Mark, uh, before we begin proceedings, um, can you tell our listeners who you are and um, a little bit about what the National Automobile Dealers Association is all about? Uh, sure, no problem. So, as you know, I'm, my name is Mark Domisov, and thanks, Thomas, for pronouncing my surname correctly. <laughs> um, it doesn't often doesn't often happen, so that's good. Um, so what I do, I, I'm the the chairman for NADA, as we call it, um, and uh, for short. And and what NADA does, it's an industry body. So it basically governs uh, or assists with the. It's it's our industry body to assist with with dealers. Um, and we, we majority focus on franchise dealers mostly, and we effectively um, are the you know the, the the glue behind the scenes that helps and 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 and, and fights, for instance, government or or industry or manufacturers or whoever it needs to be, uh, not only fighting but just assisting dealerships in you know to to lobby really um, and and so on. So so to give you a couple of examples of what we do, as you know, we've one of our uh, long-standing sort of. Um, a battle is a bit of a strong word, uh, is, is against right to repair um, and, and the industry code. Our battle isn't really against right to repair, actually. It really is against the actual code and then the competitions board to, to have a fair code that one day will be equitable for all. So you would have seen us in the press commenting on that. Um, obviously, during the lockdown, we were <clears throat> very, very much fighting and lobbying for dealers to be open a bit sooner, simply because of the risk of, of dealerships actually closing because they were closed too long. Um, and, and we got a very good, uh, lot of good, good ground there. Um, and that's a typical type of thing we do. We deal with financial service conduct authority when there's issues that deal, deal with dealers there. And simply because dealerships are quite complicated environments. They cover uh, retail, they cover financial services, they cover te- technical engineering, etc. So, so it's a very wide range role. Um, for me, it's voluntary. My, my real day job is actually I run a car dealership group called North Motor Group. And we've got a couple of brands in our stable, um, about five, Ford, Honda, Mitsubishi, Kia, um, and Mahindra. So, so that's what I do. I'm a dealer at heart and been as a car dealer for about 15 odd years now. Well, Mark, thanks for that. That's a pretty uh, comprehensive explanation. So I know Dennis has uh, quite a few questions uh, to mm. ask you. So, uh, Dennis, over to you. Mark, thank you for joining us. Um, we've spent a lot of time writing about the industry and particularly uh, you know, during the lockdown, we were waiting with bated breath for dealerships to open, and eventually they did. Mm. So j- just give us a sense of uh, how, th- how things are out there. I mean, what is the, what is the mood amongst dealers? We know that car, car sales are picking up a little bit, but what yeah. are the trends and, and what is the mood out there going forward? No, thanks, Dennis. It's a it's a good question. We we opened on about halfway through May with a limited trade. You know, we were under quite a lot of restrictions. We were all trying to find our way on how to trade under COVID nineteen, all being very apprehensive and, and cautious, even scared. Um, and and May didn't really have too much uh, to speak about. We we got going really, but uh, but sales in the industry were about almost seventy percent down on the on the comp the year before, year compared to the year before. Um, June had June is a mixed bag actually. You know, national sales were 
30% less than the year before, about 31,000, 32,000 cars versus the year before, about 45,000. So considering, you know, what we came off, um, the, the number was quite strong, actually, uh, considering where we thought we would be in, in the state of, of the world. Um, but I think going forward, we, we're still very cautious. Um, there's a major concern in dealers now that new cars are going to be considerably under pressure with the price increases that are coming through because of the exchange rate. Um, and also the effect of the economy is going to get worse as we go forward, most of us feel, because you know there's going to be more retrenchments and more downsizing. And, and as businesses change and adapt and, and slim down, really, there, there's going to be a lot of pressure on, on the consumer in terms of jobs, in terms of income. Um, so, so the course, that, that's where we are very, very concerned. Um, however, so that's a bit of a negative, but on the positive side, there's, there's, the used car business seems to be um, getting a little bit of, of legs and and especially, you know, the market is in that sub 200,000 category right now. Um, and there's lots of those cars around with, with the rental D fleets. Um, so so that, that might be a little blessing in disguise, as well as obviously interest rates that have come way down. But at mm. the dealer level, I mean, are we seeing dealers uh, closing down because of the COVID-19 lockdown, are, people, are, are salesmen being retrenched? Unfortunately, there's a lot of pressure on that. You would have seen um, the announcement from Barlow World and Imperial, each I think offloading 2,000 people in, in, the, in their retail groups. Um, and that I think is unfortunately going to continue. Um, there is a bit of uh, a bit of relief that we have in that we can, you know, as dealerships, we're allowed to keep people on short time or short remuneration for up to three months. Uh, post lockdown, so that can sort of uh, sort of try to see us through the storm and and try and um, avoid retrenchments. Uh, I am very worried about that. I think realistically, there's going to be ultimately when this all ends, probably a twenty percent decline in employment, probably amongst dealerships in general. So that's on the one side. Um, and the other side is, you know, when your market is <laughs> is going to be, some are calling it below four hundred thousand this year. Um, and next year, you know, it's going to be also significantly low. I, I think that you're going to see consolidation. Um, I think dealers probably won't need the same footprint that they will need at 550,000 units in the country versus 400,000 units, et cetera. So um, I think closures might be forced in the sense that it'll be better for the greater good. And, and you'll probably see some, some brands rationalize um, their, their footprint, which I think is already actually happening. So actual dealership closures and failures, maybe not. However, if, if something doesn't happen, um, you know, you're going to have to see some rationalization. I can't, I can't not see that, especially in the pre brands. I mean, they must be significantly under pressure. Uh, are you getting any government support, uh, perhaps in the form of TERS? Um, yes, we have. I mean, all, every dealership, we've all got our TERS. It, it's not all getting paid on time, but it is ultimately getting paid. So I can tell you as our group, I'm part of quite a big independent as my, part, my partner is a big independent. And we've all pretty much got April and May. Um, June is still not not being paid yet. I think there's quite a bit of pressure on them. But ultimately, there are. I'd say we've got 90% of our April and May tours, and 10% of the people haven't got anything. Um, you know, but they are in the system, and and we're just waiting. And then June, you know, we don't have anything yet. But there has been tours, but that's it. Nothing, nothing else. And Mark, you were chatting about uh, that sort of sub 200,000 rand segment with the used cars. But in terms yes. of uh, new car sales, um, are you seeing a buying down trend? I mean, you were saying you were responsible for the Kia and Mahindra brands. Are you seeing, yeah. say, more activity in those brands? 
I'd say definitely if you've got a cheaper offering um, and you have a very strong brand in the in the in the in the affordable segment, and um, there's definitely demand there. Um, and 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 obviously you know a five percent increase on a hundred and eighty thousand rand car or two is not as much in rands as, as the bigger ones. So so we're definitely seeing that there. I think the new cars are still being helped with uh, the cars that were on rubber on, on the pricing. So the manufacturers are trying to reduce delay their pricing as much as possible by spreading it across the stock that they have. So that with a with, with the interest rates. Ironically, still a good time to buy a car, but especially a new car as well. Um, but I mean, it's definitely in the lower segment there. Um, it's not necessarily only about buying down, you know, it's buying down, but I think people are either trying to get a good value used car or, um, you know, or, or a good new car, which, you know, nowadays every car pretty much comes with five year warranty, four year service plan. So, you know, you take the, do the purchase now with lower interest rates and, and it's a good deal. We're seeing prices have already risen recently, mm. but can you talk us through why cars tend to be quite expensive in South Africa compared to elsewhere in the world? And just to take our listeners through like all the various duties, et cetera, that, that get paid. Very good question, Dennis. Um, you know, as I said before, many people have probably looked at their, um, their car in South Africa and looked at the RAND pricing and then try to look at it in England or America or the UK or, or Australia. Uh, those ones typically are looked at. And, and, and if you're just on a straight exchange rate basis, we're always so much more expensive. Um, and the reason for that is mostly import duties. You know, it's not the manufacturers trying to make an extra buck in South Africa or the dealers, which often also get lumped in that category. Um, so we have a, a few categories of, of, of import duties, which are quite expensive. So I'll just take you through them quickly. And um, we have something called general excise. So any car, unless it comes from Europe, um, and it's specified as something called Europe One, has, well, every car that is imported to South Africa will have a 25% flat duty on the free onboard price. If it's a Euro One car, um, and that means that it's made in Europe and it has, I think, 60% local content in Europe, that 18, that 25% goes down to 18%. There's a there's a subsection there uh, for, for a sub one litre motor, there's no import duty, but those are very limited. So, but generally speaking, you're looking at between 18 or 25% on most of the vehicles imported in South Africa. That's just the standard general excise. We then have something additionally called ad valorem duty, which is a scale duty that ramps itself up the bigger and more expensive the car becomes. So on a typical A segment car like, like a Kia Picanto or a Hyundai i10, that kind of area where those car types of cars compete, there's a standard 5% ad valorem. <clears throat> uh, on, a, on a hatchback like a like a Ford Fiesta or a Kia Rio or something like that, um, it's 8%. On a sort of a sort of standard family SUV like a Honda CRV or a Kia Sportage, just to give you those kinds of things, but the ad valorem duty is 14%. So if your car doesn't come out of Europe and it's not Euro One and it's a standard SUV, you're already paying 14% plus 20, so 59% of the price of the car, the free on board price, uh, is already sucked up in duties. Um, so and then there's there's wait there's more. Um, every car also has to have CO2 tax on it. So, so that is a rating of in terms of the types of the CO2 uh, pollution that the car is rated on. And it's generally speaking, there's a, there's a benchmark of 120 grams of CO2 per kilometer. Um, so to give you an idea that during the lockdown, the, the rate was increased from 75 Rand per gram over 120 to 120 Rand a gram. So on cars like, especially your Bucky's, um, like your Ford Everest or Toyota Fortuna, 
Um, some of those cars can have up to 16,000 Rand uh, just in CO2 tax. And I think that was before the increase um, in the lockdown. Um, the, the sad thing about that is the CO doesn't really go anywhere. It just goes into the fiscus. It doesn't go to um, uh, upgrading up uh, refineries or becoming, you know, unfortunately the, the money isn't productive. It just unfortunately goes into the fiscus. Um, there's also a tire levy on every single car of 150 Rand, roughly on average. Um, that's supposed to go to the tire recycling group, um, foundation or whatever they're called, called Redisa, who ended up and uh, dismantling and, and unbundling and they just yeah i think there was a bit of a court case in in the past and that didn't go down very well ultimately they don't really exist anymore but the levy still continues to get collected and then on top of all of this is is uh, is that at 15 percent so which is the consumer tax ultimately borne by the consumer so you can understand now with all these levies um the cars are very expensive however there is a bit of benefit um any factory that makes vehicles in south africa and exports vehicles gets offset credits so in other words if, if like the c-class or the bmw um, x3 when those vehicles are exported to foreign markets those manufacturers can offset and credits against the, those import duties, which does make the cars um, a lot cheaper. So in a nutshell, that's where we are. Um, however, it does create a massive industry of factories in South Africa, creating jobs, creating whole downstream industry. But if you're if you, if you like a car that unfortunately doesn't have a factory in South Africa, those cars are quite expensive with these taxes on them. Um, Mark, I just wanted to ask something, if I may. Uh, yes. It kind of builds on what uh, Dennis was asking you in the previous question. Uh, but it has to do with electric vehicles. Now, from what I understand and from what I've seen and read, it seems that electric cars are hit with even more taxes and levies um, than the petrol-powered um, rivals. So, I mean, why why does this happen? Um if it does happen, and do you think that's going to be a problem going forward, uh, considering that most manufacturers are now uh, moving towards electric cars? Yeah, that's a really good question. I um, the reason there's a, so the first thing is that electric cars are actually very expensive for the manufacturers to make simply because of volume. And and Tesla's part of Tesla's success is not only because Elon Musk is trendy and he makes cool cars and he flies rockets up in the air. Um, it's also because um, um, the, the, the reason Tesla's success successful is because he's got subsidy on governments all over the world. So so in other words, the governments mostly subsidise the price of the cars, and that's to promote volume and get get the industry going um, so if we had the one of the reasons electric cars in this country would be so expensive is simply because um, the government won't be able to afford a subsidy let alone give one um, so without a subsidy electric cars generally are no <coughs> are no go uh, in south africa at this stage <coughs> until the price comes down the other problem with electric cars is is exactly that they become more expensive because they don't chew petrol so government doesn't get tax from them um, so in other words, when you bring your electric car in, you drive it up and down the road, petrol stations stop stop getting used and there's no tax income on there. So you're really seeing in places like California um, and <laughs> other places around the world, when you go and license your electric car, your 1,000 Rand or, one, or $100 annual license fee becomes $1,000. 
and that creates a little bit of angst and problem because ultimately, you know, death and taxes are a certainty. And all of these things that we use ultimately will need to be taxed. And, and, and there's a tax problem there with electric cars. So I don't know how government's going to sort that out. But one way will be when you go and license your Tesla when it eventually comes in South Africa, um, that, that license fee could one day get much very expensive. Interesting. Uh, Brenman, have you got any questions uh, for Mark? Yes, I do. I'm just going to step away from industry matters for a second. And, uh, and Mark, just ask you, in your time as as a car trader, tell us about some some of the weird and interesting cars that you've uh, that you've sold over the years. Maybe some interesting backstories, uh, exotics, that kind of thing. Ah, okay. So the petrol head emerges here. <laughs> um, all right, that's quite interesting. So I, you know, being a Honda dealer for most of the time, most of the interesting stuff has come come through there. Um, we nowadays, you know, a car. When I started in two thousand and five. We were selling two S two thousands every Saturday in, in our dealership here at Honda Santon. You know, we were banging them out eight eight a month, you know, big wealthy area in Bryanston. So those are very, very common cars. Um now S two thousand comes in, I mean they're trading at eighty to hundred percent above book values. You know, you could get a two thousand and seven with under seventy thousand kilometers. I mean, it is frightening what people can get for that vehicle. So those those are quite exciting nowadays because those are kind of like your modern classics that come in. Um, and it's a really cool car. It's a it's a legacy type vehicle. It was uh, you know if you look at what they did with that car. So that's quite a cool one. We traded one in the other day. I mean, uh, you know, to give you an idea, if book value was hundred and fifty thousand rand, and we asked the owner if we could buy it. He he said no no he wanted i don't know something crazy like 280,000 rand for it so we consigned it and we sold it for 300,000 rand i mean that that is a that's a 13 year old vehicle so it's it's quite nice to see that those old classics sort of modern classics are are actually still fetching really good values and 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 the engineering and the legacy behind the cars is exactly where it is so that's quite a cool story if that's okay Thanks a lot, Mark. Sounds interesting. I think this is a subject that you keep us here for hours and hours, but uh, alas, you have to go. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it, man. Um, just one thing about electric cars. I do think there's one more um, thing. that If we can start making electric cars in South Africa for the world, uh, in, in South African's factories, and I think we have the ability and the tech to do it, uh, that could bring down the price. So that might be the answer for the future. But thank you very much. I really appreciate being on the show. Mark Demessa, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time out. And um, yeah, we'll we'll hopefully talk to you again in the future. Uh, clearly, yeah, there's a lot we can chat to you about. Um, so thanks for joining us and uh, stay safe and good luck out there. Would I buy a Hubble? <laughs> but you see, like, you can't beat the diesel. Though. I'll take the petrol over the diesel any day. <laughs> Tune in to Cargumentative every Monday morning on Times Live Motoring. You can join myself, Thomas Faulkner, and my regular gang of automotive misfits as we discuss motoring news, views, and of course, have a cargument or two. That's Cargumentative only on Times Live Motoring. Welcome back to the show. It's that uh, final segment where we all chat about what we've been driving and what we've been getting up to. So um, let's lead it off with Brenwin. What's been in your garage? Right. Well, gentlemen, I just gave back the BMW 
2 Series Grand Coupe. And frankly, I'm not sold on the newcomer. For starters, it looks, uh, to my eye anyway, as odd as it did in the initial press photography. You know, they could have made it look like a shrunken down 8 Series Grand Coupe, but instead, they made it look like a contemporary 5 Series GT. And as for the drive, yes, it is a comfortable commuter, but the torques yeah, exhibited by my 220D uh, test unit was rather, shall we say, pronounced. You know, I'm struggling to find uh, the USP of this car. I think the Mercedes-Benz CLA class is uh, a far sexier execution of, of the four-door coupe template, if that's what you're looking for. And if you want a sophisticated, refined German three-box, I still think the outgoing A3 is a nicer steer. So the BMW 2 GT is, is not really the company's finest hour, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I haven't driven it, but um, it seems a bit niche, you know. It kind of seems that it's it's neither here nor there. Um, and I think it's it's maybe too much of a polarizer of opinion uh, to find much sales success. I don't know how how you feel about it, Dennis. Now, Thomas, I didn't drive that version. I drove the uh, petrol version, uh, uh, which is uh, all-wheel drive, and that didn't exhibit that same kind of torque stare. So I was a lot more impressed with, with that car. That's good to hear. Well, um, Brenwin has been driving that. What have you been driving this week? Well, it's been uh, an interesting couple of weeks. I spoke uh, just now about the BMW X5 and X6M competition. And earlier this week, I got to drive Porsche's new Taycan Turbo S, which is Porsche's entry into the electric car era. And being Porsche, uh, they've done it properly. So this is, this is the second quickest accelerating Porsche uh, production car to date. So 0-100 claims 2.8 seconds. The only one that is set to beat it is the new generation 911 Turbo S. So that, that should tell you something about how much of a thoroughbred racehorse this electric car is. And the beauty of driving it is that, that that power is just so instant. There's no lag anywhere in the rev range. The, the moment you touch the throttle, it's like you've, you've kicked a football. That's how immediate the acceleration is. And uh, it just whisks along silently, or let's say semi-silently, because underlying the whole thing is, is a bit of a sound almost like a muted jet engine sound. So and there's even a button that you can press on the dashboard to enhance that kind of jet engine sound. So it never becomes intrusive, but it just adds a little bit of emotion to the experience because as we know, Porsche is all about emotion. And just one other thing I'll say about this uh, vehicle is that uh, the suspension, which is, I suppose, what you would expect from Porsche is, is they've, got, they've got the chassis really right. So it, it corners really well this vehicle uh, but at the same time it doesn't buck around like a rodeo horse so the the ride is really comfortable it's got air suspension adaptive dampers so you've got the best of both worlds you've got a very sporty handling car and and also a great ride over rough roads so hopefully hopefully uh thomas you also get your crack at the wheel of this porsche because i i know you're you're quite a fan of the brand Dennis, I am. I'm a big fan of the brand, and uh, I'm actually getting a, a turn to drive it next week, Tuesday, um, which I'm quite excited about because I've I really enjoy driving these electric vehicles. Um, they get a lot of flack 
um, from a lot of people, you know, comparing them to appliances and how they're sort of dull. And I kind of, I disagree actually, because I find them, I find them exciting to drive, um, especially in terms of the power delivery. You, you kind of touched upon it and it's that instant, you know, full throttle power that you get from zero RPM. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm quite keen to see what, uh, what Porsche has managed to do. And I wanted to ask you, I mean, how does this um, uh, compare to something like a Jaguar I-Pace, which, which I think you'll agree um, when it was launched here, I think it was a year or two ago, that was, that was kind of a game changer. You know, we'd, 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 we'd been in I-3s, we'd been in um, Nissan Leafs, Leaves or Leafs, um, and the I-Pace came along and suddenly it was just like this, 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 this game changing vehicle with a lot more range, um, and a, a lot more performance. So, um, compared to, to the Taycan, how do you think it, it kind of, it, um, it compares against the Porsche? Thomas, so that I-Pace was a game changer, certainly, and it's still a very impressive vehicle, but in terms of the the pure performance, this Taycan Turbo S just takes things to the next level. With the sub three second nought to hundred sprint, I mean that that will compete with with any just about any supercar, any Ferrari or Lamborghini that you can think of. Yeah. Interesting. But it does come at a cost though. And Brenwin, I know that you also got to drive uh, the Taycan. Um, how much is it going for? Yeah, well, you know what? I I think I think the pricing is relative. I mean the the entry level car, well, entry level in in quotation marks, the four S starts off at about two point five million rand, and I mean that's what you'll pay for for those BMW X five M's and X six M's that Dennis was uh, talking about earlier on. So, I think to have such a level of technology at that pricing point is 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 okay, but of course if you want the turbo and the and the turbo S, uh, I mean the turbo S will set you back around the four point five million rand mark if i'm not mistaken so so yeah it is pricey what did you think about it did you did you also enjoy your time behind the wheel i most certainly did in fact uh you know the experience was was sort of on the overwhelming side you know when i got home i just sat down in the quiet of, of the afternoon for a bit uh, before I, I dove into all the technical releases because there's there's so much in that car it's just brimming with stuff, I mean, those motors are, are extremely high tech. Uh, the suspension, the chassis, and uh, the measures that they've employed to to ensure that that it's efficient and it's got a usable real world uh, uh, range, um, which they quote 412 uh, is the maximum range you can get on a full charge in the Turbo S. On our test cars, actually, when we left the dealership uh, after they were fully charged, the the range o meter indicated uh, a driving range of just under 400. So. So yeah, it was quite an experience, and uh, as as Dennis explained, the acceleration is just brutal, really. If if you're not prepared, uh, it, it does it does take you by surprise. So I'll be interested to hear your thoughts uh, uh, as well after you drive it next week, Tuesday, Thomas. And of course, it was very good to have returned those cars back in one piece at the dealership after our test drive, uh, so that everyone else can have a turn. It always it is. It always is. Uh, yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm, no. I'm 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 excited about this uh, Taycan driving. Um, 
experience. So yeah, I'll let you know what uh, what I think of it. Uh, from my side, what have I been driving? Um, well, I I got to sample that that new Crow, uh, Toyota Corolla sedan, uh, the XR spec, and um, I mean we've discussed it before, so I won't spend hours on it. But I, I was I was impressed. It was it was really smooth and refined. Uh, the seating position is fantastic, really comfortable. Um, you know, I think Toyota have done a great job on that. It, it, it kind of feels almost like a Camry um, in terms of the kind of luxury and uh, comfort levels that, that it offers. Um, my test unit had the CVT box, which, you know, it's obviously not uh, – wouldn't be my first choice, but it, it does a good enough job, and it's got those those artificial uh, gear ratios. It's got nine, I think, which is one more than a Formula One car. And um, yeah, I'd also like to see the the turbo engine there. Um, the naturally aspirated is not bad, but it's just uh, you know times have moved on, I think, and uh, to not have a turbo in that uh, Corolla sedan seems silly, especially when it's in the hatch. Um, but yeah, guys, that's that's it. I'm afraid. Uh, Paige is shouting at me via WhatsApp and Skype and Facebook, uh, red in the face, saying I must end this. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining me back in the virtual studio, and um, I'm sure we'll do it all again next week. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, so that's it from from us and from Cargumentative, and uh, we'll see you back next week, same time, same place for another show. Until then, stay safe.